Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 23 of Europe United's Eurochat series. My name is Ken Sweeney, and with me via the wonders of modern technology is my co-host, Stella Bass. Stella, hi. Hi, Ken. How are you doing on this lovely day? Ah, sure, Grant. Now, this is the next episode in a series of podcasts called Euroscience, and we are delighted to welcome our guest, Samantha Cristoforetti. Samantha is an avid reader with a passion for science and technology, enjoys learning foreign languages and loves to hike, scuba dive, or even practice yoga. And while she's not doing all these, she also happens to be an astronaut for the European Space Agency with over 200 days of space time under her belt at the International Space Station. Welcome to your science, Samantha. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. No problem. Great to have you. Samantha, let's get straight into it. What brought you to choose a career as an astronaut? Is it something that you actually think as a kid and say, I'm going to be that and then just go for it? Or did you do it via other channels? Uh, well, it's a, it's a combination of, uh, of both things, I guess. I mean, it was definitely a childhood dream for me. But of course, that's the case for many people, right? It's one of those professions that kind of fascinates uh, young children. Um, but then the question is whether growing up, you develop the right passions and the right interests and, and basically you stay on that path or, or not. Uh, and it's fine to change your mind, right? You don't want a seven-year-old mm-hmm. to decide what you're going to be <laughs> in your life. <laughs> But in my case, yes, it, it happened to be the case that as I grew up, I, I developed this, you know, more mature, more grown-up passions for for science, for technology, for flying, um, also for you know foreign languages, foreign cultures, or or maybe I shouldn't even say foreign, just you know living in a multicultural environment, and those are all things that are part of being an astronaut and so it really turned out that you know even growing up, it looked more and more like my you know, dream job. And so I, I kept pursuing it. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be one of the few Europeans of, of my generation who got uh, a chance of, of joining the European Astronaut Corps. And also you, when you got to say to be on the ISSS, I mean, you were quite visual. You made a lot of really brilliant videos. I mean, my kids watch them. They're fascinated by them. It seems that the role of an astronaut is very complex, obviously, and it's also exciting. But I mean, traditionally, it was always a science-based or maybe just something who was, even in some cases, a military-based. But it's obviously becoming more and more public dema- publicly demanding with regards to social media. Do you find that difficult to deal with or is it just something that you enjoy? I, I enjoyed it uh, a lot, um, you know, leading up to my space flight, sharing the, uh, also the training, although of course I didn't have uh, as big of a following before I actually launched into space, yeah. but I definitely made a point of telling the story from the beginning and not just, you know, you don't just happen to snap your finger and be in space, but, <laughs> you, you know, there's a lot of training that goes before that. And I enjoyed a lot sharing uh, from from space my, uh, you know, my, my what for me was my big uh, adventure. Um, I have to say for, for me at that point, it, it was finished, right? That, that public commitment of telling my story. <laughs> And, you know, and, and of course, I will do it again next time I fly to space. But um, some, sometimes what's a little bit demanding is that it seems to in our in our age, sometimes people have the expectation that you remain some kind of public figure mm-hmm. even outside of, of that. And that's a little bit um, challenging sometimes. You know, I, 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 I'm actually a very private person. And so I, I don't really share anything that has not you know, that is not directly related to my being an astronaut. That's what I think is important, uh, sharing. 
but surely you must consider, say, writing a book at some point about what you've done. Has that crossed well, your did, mind at I all? Did, I did write a book. That was important for me, too. I ah, actually good. worked uh, three years. I basically dedicated all of my free time all for right. three years. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's been out in, in Italian and German, and it's actually coming out in English in oh, August. In so, August? Yeah. Oh, great. Uh, I did close the loop Perfect on that. timing. Perfect timing for our yeah. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, what we'll do is we'll make sure that gets across our social media channels. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, Appreciate but at the same time, you just you just want to just start, switch off when you get back to when you get back to normality or back to earth, so to speak. You're using that word figuratively. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And Samantha, in terms of, I suppose, uh, focusing on some of the projects that you've been you've been working on for several years, you headed up the Spaceship EAC initiative, a, a student centered team working on the technological challenges of future missions to the moon. Can you tell our listeners what stage is that initiative at now? Well, it's uh, it's pawning children. <laughs> the, <laughs> uh, yes, yes. So the, the spaceship EAC the, that we have here at the European Astronaut Centre in Cologne is, has been, you know, going strong. It's very successful. We, you know, we, we have uh, lots of students and we're really creating like this network of, uh, you know, ex-EAC uh, students uh, or interns, uh, you know, it's, it's almost getting like a pan-European community, which is, is really nice to see. Yeah. Um, and then there's other member states of ESA who, who saw that and, and really think it, it has value. And so there's, uh, there's going to be more, let's say, spaceship-type initiatives uh, um, being set up in, in different uh, member states. I mean, I think the the first spin-off was in the UK, and then the, the, there's a few more that are in work. So it's definitely going strong. That's great. That's great to see. It's it's been a success and continuing. So, and then you are of course also the representative for the lunar orbital platform, the Gateway Project. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. So that's the next big, uh, let's say, outpost uh, infrastructure of of, of humanity in uh, in space um, after the International Space Station. Uh, it's going to be a, a smaller outpost, uh, not permanently inhabited, like the space station has been now for 20 years, soon to be 20 years. Um, it will be visited by crews periodically, probably once a year for missions of 30 to 60 days initially. Um, and it will be, that's the most important thing, uh, not in Earth orbit, but in orbit around the moon. Mm -hmm. uh, and it will serve as a, you know, an assembly point, a command post, uh, also for missions to the surface of the moon. So that's yeah. the, the next exciting thing in, in human space exploration. On a, on a more practical level, would living a sort of would living in a lunar space station would that pose different challenges to the 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 international space station, or is there is there you because you're saying it won't be permanently manned like the ISS is. Right. Um, it it will it will uh, it it will pose challenges to operations that are completely different um, because. Uh, you know, the space station is actually quite close to Earth, it's only 400 kilometers, so you have a very robust, uh, continuous logistics resupply. Uh, you have an opportunity to come back uh, fairly quickly if there is an emergency, if there are any issues. It's just, you know, less costly to build infrastructure in low Earth orbit than it is to build it in in, in moon orbit, so we, we can afford uh, more real estate, let's say, on IUIs, it's just huge. 
Right? So you, yes. you, you have a lot of space and uh, you, you can have know, a lot of spares, a lot of consumables, a lot of, uh, you know, reserve um, yeah. on, on, on Gateway. You have to plan carefully because you will not have uh, all of that. So you need your systems to be much more robust and reliable. So they need less maintenance, less spare parts, um, and, and you need to really plan your ops probably yes. with a lot less margin. And from the crew member's perspective, you will have a lot less space. So it will be a much more cramped uh, environment, environment than yeah. space station is. It's interesting and exciting, though. It really is. <laughs> yes. Samanda, actually, could I ask you a question about the ISS? I mean, obviously, you're just saying there it's 20 years old now. I have a car, like this classic car that's 25 years old. And trust me, I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go very far in it. But just uh, from, a, from a, you know, a serious point of view, what actually will happen to the ISS once it becomes, say, I, want to, I hate to use this word, but redundant? So it, it, I, I don't think, unfortunately, that it will ever become redundant mm-hmm. per se. I actually think that this will <clears throat> stay for quite some time mm-hmm. in human history, like a unique infrastructure. Uh, you know, the, the, those, you know, something with that size and capability, I don't think we're going to see in low Earth orbit uh, anytime soon once uh, space station is dismissed. Uh, but at some point, as you say, it's, it's getting old. It cannot go on forever. At some point, it will, it, it will have to be uh, deorbited. Um, I, I don't think it will happen before the end of this decade, for for right. sure. Uh, that there's been structural um, analysis done um, that have confirmed that it can hold up at least until 2028, no problem. And it has been, of course, you know, yes, indeed, it, it's over 20 years old now, but it has been constantly upgraded. Like, for example, in recent months, we have seen we have seen a a long series of uh, extravehicular activities to replace all the batteries so that it has brand new batteries now, for example. Uh, so, yes, the main structure is 20 years old. Well, not all of it, but mm-hmm. the oldest modules. Uh, but, of course, a lot of the equipment has been replaced and refurbished. And we've seen in some science fiction films where they have taken the ISS and kind of just built around it. Could that, could that be something that could pro- probably happen or is that a possibility? You know, that they actually just keep adding on pieces and as, as right. they add on pieces, the old pieces are just taken away. Right. I mean, in, in, in principle, it's not impossible, right? But it's it's just a question whether it's, uh, um, yeah, whether it, it makes sense, you know, what what's mm. the benefit mm. you're getting out of that and how much would it cost yeah. to do that? I mean, in principle, yeah. of course, it's not impossible you could do that. And finally, on that question, could somebody actually just buy it? Is it possible that a private enterprise could purchase it at some point? <laughs> um, I, I suppose so. I, uh, I, I, L- looking you know, at I mean, you, Elon Musk. That's definitely yeah. something that's above my pay grade, I tell you. But. <laughs> I mean, it's like anything. I mean, five, ten years ago, if we'd have said that Richard Branson was going to end up in space, we'd all go, what? But now, like, you know, anything yeah. is possible. So, I mean, somebody, yeah, somebody like, Jeff Bezos I, could offer him, give a, a mafia-style offer you can't refuse, you know? So. <laughs> I mean, it might be, but I I think there's private enterprises mm-hmm. that are looking more at building their own space right. station. I mean, there's one in particular that won uh, um, a, a public contested opportunity of putting a module on one of the free ports of right. the ISS. And that's called Axion, it's a private company. And uh, they plan to fly this module and 
I don't know, maybe by 2024, if I've got this right, um, and then further expand it. And then eventually when space station, again, will get to old and will be deorbited, their idea is that they will detach their piece right. and continue operating their so piece. Standalone, so that's, yeah. yeah, that's one scenario that might occur. And just in regards to, say, the... You know, it's a very public thing that we always have learned, even as a child. I remember when ESA started off, they always launched from French Guiana. Now, for people who are not versed in the dynamics of space launching, why is it that Europe is not used as a launch base? (laughs) Well, we are very far north. Mm -hmm. Uh, You guys in Ireland especially, but (laughs) Europe... Overall, it's it's uh, it's at quite far northern latitudes, and you want your launch sites to be as close as possible to the uh, equator, mm-hmm. just because you know you're, you're using the the Earth spin to help you out. It kind of gives you a boost towards the east, just by virtue of spinning, mm-hmm. and that spin is is biggest as the equator because that's you know that's where you're furthest out from the axis of rotation of uh, of the earth so french guiana is really really close to the equator so we're actually really fortunate that we have that opportunity of launch base there Mm -hmm. yeah very lucky i mean there could be some 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 other country could you know be doing quite well and you know if they could rent the space from there you know yeah yeah. like it has a logistic or it is a logical sort of reason for it yeah yeah you know absolutely but i mean even if in the United States, they launch from Florida, which is uh, pretty much as far south as south, I can as go. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. uh, Russia has launched, uh, uh, is continuing to launch, but historically has launched from Baikonur, which is down in Kazakhstan, which is as far south as they can go. So, you know, we, we, we all try to go as far, you know, from the south. northern hemisphere south as we can go because they're closest to the equator. Now, Samantha, you are, of course, the first female lieutenant fighter pilot in the Italian Air Force. Um, But, of course, space exploration has traditionally been a more, I suppose, male domain. Now, were you aware at any stage during the the course of your your career, if you ever experienced gender discrimination or or if you were overlooked for a project or is space is the sort of the industry I suppose, has it sort of, uh, is it more evolved than that at this stage? Um, I mean, as, as an astronaut, I think I have joined the space program uh, maybe after this was a big issue. Uh, so yeah. I, I joined in, yeah. in 2009. Um, I, I know it might raise questions from the outside if you say, you know, I'm, I'm the only female European astronaut in Europe, but but then again, in my class, we were six overall, right? So you cannot really make statistics. It could have been zero if I'd broken my leg, or it could have been <laughs> three if, I don't know, maybe there were like other stellar people who happened to break their legs. I don't know. I mean, there is yeah. so much uh, random things that can happen when the numbers are so small that make the percentage look so different. Um, yeah. That said, you know, for example, in the U.S., where you have more frequent selections, if you see in the last decade that they've had almost 50% females uh, selected. And um, if you look at the crews, I mean, that the, obviously women are doing exactly the same that guys do. So yeah. um, at least in the astronaut world, in, in, in and at least in Europe and the US, I think uh, I, I joined after the time when this might have been an issue. Do you think it, Do you think it's possible, Samantha, that we could see a female commander on the first one or two missions to the return to the moon and, and Mars? Yeah, of course, yes. Mm-hmm. And there would be people why, out why, there... Why, why would it be possible? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. 
I'm with Samantha on this, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> hey, me too. You know, that's we don't want some gung ho guy going down there. You know, that's you know, we're we're the worst uh, for that. You know, absolutely. You know, but then again, it could even uh, be an Irish person, so you never know. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> <laughs> Although we'd obviously two days later we'd have a Guinness pub there. You know, uh, to be that's that'd exactly be an Irish pub on the moon. Of course, there would be. Yeah, <laughs> that would be the first facility that the Irish ESA will open up. They'll say we got to get the lads. You know sorted out <laughs> oh god <laughs> samantha um obviously there's um you know there's a different type of rockets that are used by the esa i think ariane 5 uh you use soyuz and then there's the very um cool looking vega rocket um the, the the ariane 6 project was um was supposed to be replacing the ariane 5 has is that still going along quite fine really running well or has COVID 19 impacted on that um, I, I believe I read recently that uh, COVID did have uh, some impact and so the, the, the schedule is slightly delayed. So the maiden flight of Ariane 6 will be slightly delayed. Now don't don't pin me down on a date there. Maybe you can, <laughs> you can look it up and put it in the show notes or something because I'm mm-hmm. not sure that I have exactly in my mind. But uh, yeah, the, 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 I think there was an announcement of a small delay due to uh, COVID-19 but nothing significant. I mean, you know, the plan is still, of course, to, to Ariane 6 to come online soon and eventually Ariane 5 to phase out. Vega, as you mentioned, uh, has also been very successful and uh, hopefully um, sometimes in August it will uh, return to flight after uh, an, an, an accident it had last year after many, many successful flights. Mm then, you know, that the Vega is going to be upgraded as well. So we'll have this C version, so the Vega C, which, which an inc- with an increased payload capability uh, that will also come come online uh, probably next year. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's all on track, maybe with some small delays. And when you look at, say, what Elon Musk has done with his launch and return system, um, is the traditional idea of, say, what Ariane 5 was, is that being, is that kind of redundant now or is it still a, more, a feasible way of launching rockets? I mean, that, that's hard to say. There's, you know, different points of view on on that, on, you know, w- what is exactly the, um, the cost benefit that you get by reusing a rocket as opposed to, you know, throwing it away. Mm-hmm. But that said, I think that the success of space SpaceX has definitely made the argument uh, stronger mm. than it used to be. That and uh, actually reusability is, is definitely something good to have, and uh, there's uh, there's an effort towards to that effect also in Europe now. And speaking of that, would do you ever see a European version of uh, of SpaceX? You know, you 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 mean that uh, disruptive, uh, very dynamic uh, company? Yeah, or I suppose um, the whole idea of sort of private private enterprise and sort of is is one Elon Musk enough for the space the space world? <laughs> um, it, it might happen, of course, in terms of having private actors becoming more uh, uh, visible, more prominent in the European scene. I, I can definitely see that happen. Uh, whether it's really going to be a SpaceX type, uh, I mean, that that's also related to it. Uh, I think uh, a certain quality also of the, of the U.S. job market and how you can run companies over there as opposed to, to what you can do in Europe. I mean, there, there's also uh, broader, how should I say, 
societal differences that, that play a role. It's not only about, you know, being a genius entrepreneur or uh, having good technical ideas. I suppose on that as well, space is known, I suppose, as a very, and you mentioned it earlier, as a sort of a collaborative process. Um, I, and I suppose, apart from the early days when, of course, the, the Cold War was at its height, it used to be a place of nations competing. But it seems that the ESA was was one of the first agencies to bring nations together in that kind of cooperative sense. Now, could you see that happening maybe across the more emerging nations like India, Japan, even Iran? Is that something you, you, you might foresee? Uh, I mean, definitely. I mean, we, we have from ESA side, of course, you know, we, we are an agency. So, in, you know, in, in terms of European member states, of course, we're we are all part of the same agency. So in, in that sense, the cooperation, yeah. of course, is very, very close. But that doesn't mean that we do not cooperate and we don't have partnerships with, with countries across the globe. Now, you mentioned Iran. That might be one of the most difficult ones, obviously, for reasons. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, but, but generally speaking, of course, we, we try to reach out uh, to uh, um, any interesting party and especially on scientific missions, cooperations usually involve you know, sometimes a dozen or two dozens of, of countries that put instruments on a on a satellite, and you know, the scientists uh, usually are at the for, forefront of, of cooperation. So, yeah, definitely. That's- Samantha, also, can I ask you a question regarding, say, what's happened with COVID nineteen pandemic? Do you think that the space industry has an important role to play in such problems as, say, the, what's happening with the world at the moment? Yes, I do. Um, I, I think there is more and more an understanding, which I believe is the correct one, that mm. space can be space assets can be really seen as a basic infrastructure. Like you see your electric grid or your, you know, streets or, you know, sewage system or or, or whatever. You know, the, the satellite fleets that provide telecommunications capabilities, you know, faster and faster, more and more reliable, broader and broader bandwidth. Um, Earth observation satellites have been huge during, during COVID. Uh, also, by the way, to monitor the environmental consequences. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a unique. Of course, we, we none of us wished for it to happen, but it did happen. And uh, you know, one of the positive side effects is that it gave as an opportunity to monitor what happens with, for example, greenhouse gases emissions when you. Uh, you know, bring the world economy and social and economic activities to a partial stop. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. that's incredibly valuable to be able to observe that, you know, because you can put it into your models and and, and get a better understanding what of, of what would need to be done to actually reach the targets that we have in terms of greenhouse um, emissions. And then, of course, <clears throat> there's all the um, positioning uh, services from, from, from Galileo, the, the the European uh, um, positioning service, satellite-based uh, positioning services. So all of that is basically basic infrastructure. So what 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 we like to talk about is like space-enabled solutions, and mm-hmm. and this has been talked about at ESA a lot during the COVID crisis. You know, we've. Uh, the, the agency has responded really fast by issuing like calls and and uh, and and fast tracked ways of placing contracts also to small companies that had ideas about how to leverage those space based assets for technological solutions. For example, for COVID, but generally speaking, for all the sustainability challenges that we're all facing. So this is something that we pay a lot of attention to. 
it's really interesting and I suppose it leads nicely onto my next question. Uh, any exciting future projects that the ESA is undertaking? So, of course, the, the agency, of course, is very broad. So we, 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 we have projects ranging from, as we discussed earlier, uh, launchers, but also space situational awareness, uh, basic tech, uh, science, earth observation, telecommunication, navigation, and so on. Um, if we want to talk specifically about, um, say, um, what we call exploration, human and robotic exploration, which is what, what we do in my piece of ESA, as you know, we're, we're astronauts. <laughs> Are also embedded. Um, you know, we we, we kind of split it in. You know, the, this three destinations for for human and robotic explorations: so basically, low Earth orbit, Moon, and and Mars. So, in terms of low Earth orbit, of course, we we already mentioned space station is still going strong, and so we you know we we keep upgrading and and supporting the the science up there. We already mentioned the the lunar gateway. Maybe we didn't mention specifically what the ESA contribution is. I, I, hopefully, I didn't give the impression that that was just an ESA project. It's a, it's a very no, 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 NASA-led no. <laughs> international yeah. project. Um, so, but what we are contributing to and uh, to, to this uh, to this project is, <clears throat> uh, I guess, the biggest contribution is a module. That's specifically what I'm working on, by the way. It's called International Habitat, IHAB, um, and it will be basically the main habitation module of this uh, space station should launch sometimes in, in 2025, which might sound very far away, but in, in you know with, with the times that it takes to build a space infrastructure and launch it, uh, it it's actually really tomorrow or maybe even yesterday so we, we <laughs> quick turnaround <laughs> yeah we're, we're on a pretty tight uh, timeline great uh, to hear before that we will also contribute uh, communication infrastructure to augment the communication capabilities of uh, of gateway uh, in particular towards the surface of the moon um, and all, and later, uh, and, and I think it will be really cool for astronauts who will fly a refueling module that will be able to refuel the engines of, of this uh, gateway. Uh, but we'll also have like a, <clears throat> a small corridor which has windows all around it. And, and those will be the, actual, the first actual windows that this uh, gateway gets. Um, wow. and, and they will be really panoramic, like 360 degrees around. So um, yeah, that, that, that will be, I think, fantastic for, for the crew to have. So those are the main um, uh, ESA, let's say, hardware that we will contribute. At the same time, we are also uh, starting, let's say, what we call phase A studies, so early uh, feasibility studies for a um, cargo vehicle that might one day go to Gateway, like, you know, later in the decade, <clears throat> and also a lander for the surface of the moon, you know, to, to bring uh, payloads, you know, science experiments or pieces of infrastructure or robots to uh, the surface of the moon. So those are like, you know, it, it kind of always works like that. You start mm -hmm. with this uh, phase A studies. So Samantha, um, we have a couple of um, questions that we'd like to ask you. Now, a couple of these are from my, my daughters. They've been uh, really keen to uh, put forward a few questions, especially my seven-year-old uh, daughter, Lydia. So it, it, we'll get straight into them for you. Uh, Lydia said... The quick fire. Yeah, quick fire ones. <laughs> Lydia said, um, she has a question. What would happen in the International Space Station? Should it be threatened by a meteor storm? Right. So um, if you knew and assuming you knew that in advance and uh, the danger was uh, considered very high, um, there's, of course, an option for you to come back home. 
um, if it, for whatever reason, it just happened unexpectedly, then of course it would become quite dangerous. Uh, it, it's it's quite likely in that case that uh, you know the the debris might pierce through the hull of the of the space station, and mm-hmm. and in that case, I mean you you would probably have to evacuate, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, and and come back. And, and and we are trained for those scenarios of uh, emergency evacuation. So there's Good an es- there's, there's escape pods and stuff like that. Is there? <laughs> yeah, we, we you, have, you know the the spaceship that flies you up there mm-hmm. is usually docked there, and and it's the same that is going to fly you back home. And while you're up there, it's also your escape pod. <laughs> ah, I see. Good to hear. Good to hear. And another question um, from Lydia: Do you miss your family when you're in space? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's it, it's it's like. Any time that you are away from from your family, of course you're gonna miss them, and and some people uh, suffer more of that, and some people suffer less. Uh, but yeah. um, but definitely, yeah, just... being in space doesn't prevent you from from uh, missing your family for sure not. <laughs> now my my three year old, this is her question. Apologies in advance, but this is what she <laughs> asked me. She said, "Are you allowed to fart in your spacesuit?" <laughs> You know, your spacesuit is like your your own little spaceship. You know, you're in charge, you're the commander. So if you want to fart in there, you you know, you're welcome to go ahead and do so and live with the consequences. <laughs> okay, so she'd be, she'd be delighted with that one anyway, because she's going to use that excuse now, you know. <laughs> oh, and, and speaking of being in command, uh, we know that you're a big fan of Star Trek. So if you had to have a captain from Star Trek as a commanding officer, which one would it be and why? Um, I, I really like Janeway, actually. Yeah, yeah Captain Janeway. Cool. Uh, Janeway. Was I won favorite. that bet. <laughs> you did. <laughs> she's cool. We figured she's you might be, yeah. <laughs> I would have said, I would have said, poor old Captain Archer. He never gets any kind of applause for what he does, even though he was the first. But anyway, uh, okay, so we've one final question, and this is a bit of a surprise one. Apologies, we haven't got this on the list, but we really thought this was very important. So imagine during your time on the ISS, you had one pizza delivery but it turns out to be pineapple. Would you still eat it or is it physically impossible for an Italian woman to do so? Yeah, I'm afraid it would be impossible. <laughs> as, as I said to Ken, I am about 1 16th Italian and pineapple is cool with me, but I think that's because I'm 15 16th Irish. <laughs> <laughs> I love pineapple, but not on a pizza. <laughs> Samantha, th- thank you so much for joining us today. It yes. was uh, it was absolutely amazing uh, chatting with you and if you want to find out more about what the ESA do you can go to their website at www.esa.int and Samantha you are also on Twitter I believe at uh, at Astro Samantha so it's been great to have you today thank you And of course, if you want to know more about us at Europe United, you can go to our media platform at europeunited.eu or join us on the major social media platforms at europeunited.eu. My name is Ken Sweeney and thank you to my co-host, Stella Bass. And of course, thank you to our guest, Samantha Cristoforetti. Uh, we'll see you real soon. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>